Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, and welcome to the 2022 Sydney Writers' Festival with its very beguiling theme, Change My Mind. Hmm, and topical, I think, too, given tomorrow. What a delight it is to be here with you for the session, Mother of All Crimes. My name's Suzanne Leal. I'm the author of novels, The Teacher's Secret and The Deceptions. And next year, I'll have two new novels out. I'm a board member of the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival, which some of you may know. I'm the co-host of the Bad All About Crime podcast and host of Thursday Book Club, a relaxed book club connecting readers online. But now, of course, to my guests. Jane Caro, to my very left, is a Walkley-winning Australian columnist, an author, a novelist, a broadcaster, advertising writer, documentary maker, feminist and social commentator. She co-presents the popular podcast, Women With Clout, and her new novel is, of course, the bestseller, The Mother. Welcome to you, Jane. Thank you, Suzanne. Jane, one thing I didn't add is that you've added another string to your bow. What exactly is that? For my sins, I'm standing for the Senate, uh, for the Reason Party (laughs) in New South Wales. And if you haven't voted yet, column H (laughs) on the big white paper. Danuka McKenzie is in the middle, and her novel, The Torrent, won the 2020 Banjo Prize and was published by HarperCollins Australia early this year. Her new novel, Taken, which was long-listed for the 2020 Rochelle Prize, will be published next year. When not writing, Danuka works in the environmental sector and volunteers as part of the team behind the Writers Unleashed Festival. Welcome to you, Danuka. Now, I'm told, Danuka, not only are you a gun writer, but you're a gun organiser. And in fact, the team behind Writers Unleashed is um, a very efficient one. (laughs) What do you like about about the festival work? Oh, I love that because it's... um I love that kind of local, um, you know, festival where you kind of really get to meet the authors and just, you know, mingle with them and stuff like that. So ours is kind of like a day festival, so it's very short, sharp and sweet, but I just I just adore it because you get to be on the other side and you get to kind of hang out with all your favourite authors. Fantastic. <laughs> Laura Elizabeth Woollett is sitting closest to me and her short story collection, The Love of a Bad Man, was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction and the Ned Kelly Award for the Best First Fiction. Her novel, Beautiful Revolutionary, was shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Award. Her new novel is, of course, The Newcomer. Welcome to you, Laura. Thank you. I must say, I really love the titles of your books. I particularly like The Love of a Bad Man. Is that a publisher title or your title? Uh, All my titles are my own. I like have always had the title before I've even written the book um, until the book that I'm writing right now. I still don't have a confirmed title for that, which is a first. But You, you must be talented, though, because I also always have a title, but the publisher always says, mm, I don't think so. Speaking of titles, Mother of All Crimes, what a great title for a session, and look how full the audience is. So what we're going to be doing is to be looking at depictions of mothers in crime fiction. Before we discuss the mothers that are set out in each of these three books at the front of the stage, I've got a general question for each of our guests. 
which fictional mother has most stayed with you? Doesn't have to be crime fiction, just which fictional mother? I'm going to start with Laura. Uh, I would have to say Livia Soprano from The Sopranos, um, Tony Soprano's mum. She's not a good mother by any definition, but um, I just find it really fascinating to have those characters who have that chaotic, negative energy. And um, especially in a mother, it's such a like interesting thing that you don't get to see very often. Um, yeah, and you know, she she doesn't like her children. She doesn't like people in general. Um, she doesn't like life, but you know, she she's alive and she will be respected and she will make other people miserable. That's kind of <laughs> her mission in life. And um, yeah, I think, you know, she's just a really believable character and it, it takes a lot of skill to write someone who is abhorrent in a lot of ways, but still feels really human. And like, I totally believed, like watching her, that there's Olivia Soprano in like every nursing home. <laughs> like, it just seems like a really believable character. And um, yeah, you know, Tony Soprano would not be as interesting a protagonist if she wasn't his mother. <laughs> you know, um, the panel knew this question, but I didn't know what their answer was going to be. And they don't know what each other's <laughs> answers are, as you don't. So it's really fascinating to hear who you've come up with. Danuka, who's you? Um, yeah, so when you asked that question, the first person that came to mind was Ava um, Kachdorian uh, from We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver. So, um, yeah, that mother has really kind of stayed with me, I think, that character. Um, I think that that book was really one of the first books I read which uh, really delved into kind of ambivalence in, in parenting. Um, you know, like all the books that I've kind of grown up on, like, you, you know, like, say, The Little Women or whatever, you know, it has that really kind of devotional uh, version of parenting, you know, where you kind of give your life to your children. Um, and this was really the first book that I had certainly read which really kind of did that deep dive into the ambivalent feeling, um, you know, not necessarily wanting kids, you know, and then when you have kids, you know, that feeling of resentment when the kind of expectation of parenthood doesn't really match the reality, um, you know, I guess feeling like you don't have the skills to cope with maybe a child that has kind of, you know, behavioural issues, taking refuge in the easy child, you know, all those, I think those threads, you know, I think there are certain, those threads I think are familiar in, in other people's lives as well. Um, Maybe not as 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 much as that, but um, but yeah, no. I thought it was a kind of a really complex uh, kind of deep dive into motherhood, the other side of motherhood, um, not the sort of you know um, the, the the version you see in, in ads. Let's say, yeah. And I think people in the audience would agree that book by Lionel Shriver, we need to talk about Kevin, is a frightening and absolutely compelling piece. Jane, who's your mum? Your fictional Mrs. mother, Bennett. <laughs> Absolutely, Mrs. Bennett. I am militant in my support for Mrs. Bennett. She has been absolutely uh, the calumnies about Mrs. Bennett and the way she's presented. From a feminist perspective, Mrs. Bennett is a hero because she has all those daughters. They have no house to inherit, no way of getting a job, and she is determined to get them married so that they will have an income. Now, Jane Austen thinks this is shocking. That's because Jane Austen is, in this particular case, an idiot, never had children herself, 
and doesn't understand how scary it can be to have daughters in a time when there was no way for those girls to actually launch their own kind of lives. They had to find a man. And Mrs. Bennett is not the stupid one in the partnership. Mr. Bennett is the pain in the ass who does absolutely nothing to help his daughters. He retires to his study and reads lots of books written by blokes about what life's like for blokes. And bloody Elizabeth Bennett thinks that's something to admire. I'm sorry, I'm going to write a novel about Mrs. Bennett. (laughs) (laughs) How up this year's theme, Change My Mind. I'm thinking, (laughs) should I also change my mind? (laughs) Let's move to characters more at home, uh, mothers in your books themselves. In each of these new novels, the main character is indeed a mother. Danuka, the torrent thief features Detective Sergeant Kate Miles. Can you tell me a bit about Kate? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So I started writing Kate uh, in a period of my life where I was very overwhelmed uh, by sort of basically um, looking after young kids and and juggling sort of work myself. So um, I found that period very overwhelming. I mean, I still find it challenging. And it's that period where you feel kind of stretched and you feel like you're not doing anything right or giving time to anything properly. And I really wanted to kind of carve space for myself and do something and put something on the table that reflected just me um, and not my other roles as a mother and a a, a wife and and, and an employee. So that's really how I started writing. And and so, um, and having now done so many of these events, I realised how much of myself I have put in, Kate, because clearly I was graphic with those issues myself and so that's what's reflected in Kate so you know the question in my mind was you know I know how hard I found that and what would that look like for a police officer you know um, not only juggling kind of family and work life but then also juggling that very kind of challenging profession you know police work um, so that's kind of um, where she came from, you know, and, and so she is very much juggling that and she has got... I also wanted to reflect sort of her partner being quite supportive because I wanted kind of a supportive partner to be on the page of a book, you know. Uh, you, you know, I mean, detective fiction comes from the trope of, you know, male detectives, childless, single, you know, gets all the girls, you know, jaded alcoholics. And I, I just wanted to see, I guess, a different version of strength reflected on the page, um, you know, and the strength that's reflected in kind of most of the women, you know, like all the women we see around us, which is, you know, highly kind of professionally competent and and juggling like a million things. Those are the women in my life and I wanted that version of strength kind of on the page. And I also wanted like, you know, her partner to be supportive of her and not feel kind of resentful and emasculated of having to kind of look after his own kids, you know. So, uh, yeah, so I wanted that unit um, and that's kind of, yeah, where she came from. She's very different, but she did make me think of the Fargo character (laughs) where, you've again, you've got a woman who's trying to do everything and, of course, Kate is also eight months pregnant when we meet her. Yes. She is, yes. She doesn't do things by halves, that one. Um, But, yeah, no, look, I wanted to... I wanted her to... You know, like Kate is person. She she has built up this career, right? And and she has got to the point that she is now pregnant, and you know she has uh, a child. She has a young child. Um, and you know, I remember that situation where you know you you know you you have this career, and then you hit a point, and you become a mother, and those decisions are fairly stark at that point. Like, oh, it's a, it's a it's a 
it's a conscious decision that you've got to then make. Okay, do I go back to work full-time? You know, if I don't, is it, is it part-time? How many hours? What are the childcare implications? What are the financial implications? You know, what, what, are, what are my promotion prospects, you know, depending on the hours I do? So uh, those decisions I didn't feel are necessarily as stuck for an equivalent man in that, in that situation. So I felt for Kate, like, you know, she has built up this career. She has got her promotion. Um, why should she give it up? You know, a man in her position would not be required to give it up, in, you know, at, at that point if his, if his family was having a new child in their family. So um, that was the Kate I wrote. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Laura, on the first page of The Newcomer, we meet Judy Novak. Where is she and what's she doing there? Uh, so she's in a hotel room on the fictional island of Fairfolk Island. Um, she is visiting her daughter, Paulina, for the first time since she moved to the island a couple of years ago. Uh, Paulina is about to turn 30. Uh, she is quite troubled and Judy knows that she's having a lot of feelings about turning 30. Um, so when her daughter doesn't make an appointment with her, she starts to get very worried and um, yeah, that's where the novel begins. Can you describe Judy for me? If I was to walk into the pages of your book to meet Judy, what would I see? Judy is a young widow, so she's in her early 50s when the story begins. Um, she was very young when she married her husband. He was a lot older than her, and um, yeah, she, she was wid widowed in her 30s and has been raising Paulina alone for many years. Um, Judy is very much a woman who grew up in a certain time. She was born in the 1950s, uh, very much instilled with these values of a woman should be seen but not heard. Um, women should put other people before themselves. And she internalizes these things and she is good at these things, but um, she doesn't want to raise her daughter that way. And I think in, um, in her raising of Paulina, she kind of overcorrects the way that she was raised and she doesn't always set boundaries. Um, Paulina is, you know, quite um, harsh in the way she speaks to her mother sometimes. Um, so yeah, it is a relationship where they are extremely close, but the boundaries are quite blurred. Um, Judy is a character who I think, you know, initially comes across as very soft and um, very, like, conventionally motherly, and she is, but she, she is more complex than that as well. Um, you know, her, her upbringing and um, her relationship with Paulina's father, like, all, all of those things have formed her, and yeah, I really see her as a character who has spent most of her life um, being a mother, and that is her main identity. And um, so this novel is largely about, you know, what happens when that identity is disrupted by her daughter's murder. And you've mentioned the daughter's murder, and that, that's not a spoiler, because, of course, um, very early in the book, we realise that the reason that Paulina isn't making the appointment is because she's been murdered. Um, this story was inspired by a true criminal case. Can you tell me a bit about that case? Yeah, so it was um, loosely inspired by the murder of Janelle Patton on Norfolk Island in 2002. Um, like Paulina, Janelle was a girl, young woman from Sydney uh, who moved to an island to start a new life. 
And um, yeah, uh, she, I won't go too much into the details of the crime, but you know, it was a very unique case because um, whoever committed the murder was on the island at the time. Uh, it had a population of about 2,000 people. Um, and like Paulina, um, Janelle's parents were actually visiting her on the island at the time of the murder. So um, when I read about the case, yeah, I was really struck by that and by the tragedy of that, you know, like a, a family who are, you know, seeing their daughter who maybe the relationship has been rocky at times, but, you know, they are excited for her and her new life. And um, yeah, I, I, I was really struck by that case. Um, yeah, but Paulina's family situation is quite different, uh, and all the you know suspects in the, in the novel are fictional people. So I didn't go too too close with the facts of that case. I mean, that's the beauty of fiction, isn't it? It can mm -hmm. be inspired by something true, and then you just go off into yeah. the imaginary world. Thank you, Jane. Mir Mir Miriam Duffy is the main character in your novel, The Mother. Tell me a bit about Miriam. Miriam when we meet her, is a woman who's rather pleased with herself. Um, she thinks her life has gone pretty well. She's in her late 50s. She has two daughters. She has one grandchild. She has a good, long-lasting marriage. Again, Pete is a supportive, unthreatened by his wife's professional success and also by her quite um, strong personality. Um, he enjoys it. He's proud of her. Uh, and things are going well. But that's what it looks like on the outside. Um, in fact, she does have and has had for a very long time a niggle, a constant niggle, and that is her relationship with her youngest daughter. She has a good relationship with her oldest daughter. They get on well. But Miriam constantly feels that she can't get close to her youngest child. She feels that she has an uncanny ability to say exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time with this child. Now, I'm sure that all of you mothers in the audience will have no idea what that feels like. And she worries about it. She ruminates about it. She worries about this relationship and she looks at the way she brought her daughters up and she wonders, how did she cause this um, not riff, they're not estranged, but this inability for her to feel as comfortable with one daughter as she does with the other. And she blames herself. You know, when by the time she'd had a second child, she was in a hurry to get back to her career. You know, she found Alison needier than Fiona. She found that irritating. You know, she, she, and she's guilty about this. And the, and the constantly trying to get close to her, I think, is a kind of compensation for what she thinks she failed at. But she's actually feeling a bit better about the whole thing because Alison, after a series of dropkick boyfriends, has finally met the suitor from Central Casting. He's tall, he's handsome, he's got a charming smile. I describe him as having JFK Jr. hair, which is the single best hair any man has ever been born with. Um, and uh, he, you know, he's a vet, practically a doctor. I mean, Miriam feels a bit like Mrs. Bennett. And um, so she's feeling good, the wedding happens, it's all marvellous, and then Ali and Nick 
move to the country because he's a vet, large animal vet, I need to go there. And then suddenly, cutting across Miriam's life, comes the very sudden death of her beloved husband of 30-odd years, Pete. And she is absolutely blindsided and bereft. And she desperately wants her daughters close. But Alison is not only three hours' drive away, but even more distant than she's ever been before, even when she has her first child, even when she has her second child. Nick starts to drop hints and ask Miriam, is there something wrong with Alison's mental health? Has she ever had mental health issues? There's all sorts of things happening that Miriam doesn't know how to handle. And her sense of her life as being a good one and well sorted and she's got it all under control is falling apart around her. And then out of the blue, Alison and the two very young children arrive on her doorstep seeking refuge from the husband who isn't at all what he appears. And I'm not going to say any more than that, but I will say that Miriam's journey from there on in takes her to places and into situations that she never, ever dreamt possible. Mm. What I'm interested in looking at now is the concept of the victim, a victim who is endearing or the victim who's not. And to turn, turning to you, Laura, mm. the murder victim in your case is Paulina. And I don't know if I'm speaking out of school, but I didn't find her particularly endearing. Mm. Tell me what you wanted to explore with um, a character like Paulina and what she's like. Yeah, I, I, I do get the unlikable description quite a lot, which I find a bit, um, a bit reductive. I, I find her, you know, complex and I, I actually really like her personally. Um, but yeah, I wanted to really, um, number one, I wanted to show a victim who takes up space in, in the way that victims don't normally get to. You know, she is the loudest character in the book. She is the biggest character in the book. Um, even though we know that she, she has died at the beginning, like she is the person more than anyone else who propels the story forward and we get to see her um, every second chapter is from Paulina's perspective when she's alive. And yeah, she's, she's really the person who moves the book forward and um, you know, her actions affect everyone around her. And yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed um, just inhabiting a personality that was that big. And I, I wasn't thinking about whether she was likable or anything like that. When I was writing her, I just wanted her to be big and wanted her to be alive. Um, but yeah, I also wanted to show the value of the life of somebody who doesn't always enjoy being alive. So she does have mental health issues. Um, she has alcohol addiction. Uh, I think it gets progressively worse throughout the book. So in the beginning, it, you know, initially just seems like she's been been drinking to try to get over a breakup and um it kind of like deteriorates from there but you know she she isn't living the way that um i guess you know we're told like treat treat our bodies well don't put ourselves in these situations she is putting herself in certain situations but um that doesn't mean that she doesn't want to live or that she doesn't deserve 
you know, to be mourned as much as anybody else. Um, yeah, and she, she does have also an eating disorder, um, which, you know, I explore as well throughout the novel. So, yeah, I just wanted to show that, like, even when a person isn't living ideally, like, that their life still has as much value as anybody else's. And, of course, she's loved, and she's loved yeah. very much by her mother. And I think you, you display that mother-daughter conflict and great love, even, even in depth, mm -hmm. very, very movingly. In each of these books, you explore violence against women. What drew you to this topic? And I'll start with Danuka. Um, yeah, I guess the vision is kind of violence that uh, I guess is explored in the torrent um, is probably um, sort of more looking at sort of microaggressions um, of, of, I guess, a, you know, Kate having to uh, work in a very kind of male-dominated uh, profession. Um, so it's not the kind of the, maybe the more explicit sort of... Um, you know, intimate partner violence that's sort of explored in, in um, Jane and, and Laura's books. But so I guess what I wanted to look at with, with Kate was very much, I mean, she, she is a woman in this very, you know, male-dominated profession. Not only that, she is a pers um, person of colour. She is a, um, she has a senior role um, in, in a regional town. So she she's kind of, um, and, and then of course she's pregnant as well in, in this case. So she is kind of navigating multiple um, layers of kind of um, biases there. Um, and she's having to navigate sort of situations and people, which I think we've all had that experience of where you're having to navigate uncomfortable situations, uncomfortable people, having to de-escalate situations, um, having to assess it on the run to make sure, um, you know, to work out and how to kind of navigate that situation in order to not have a consequence for your, you know, for, for, for your job, for your reputation, for your safety. Um, and I think those, those things are very familiar to most of us. Um, and I think in particular in her case, you know, I, I wanted to kind of show that. And I think for Kate, it's very telling um, that, for example, one of the one of the characters that she, uh, you know, comes across, you know, a work colleague, um, she never ends up kind of reporting him. And I think that is, and I deliberately wrote her that way because um, it is, you know, she she is working in this this male-dominated thing which values and has a culture, has entrenched culture of sort of toughness and, and not showing weakness and all that kind of stuff. And she has internalised those things. So she is absolutely um, going through her work profession, uh, making sure that there's at no point no one can kind of show her, uh, can point out to go, oh, well, she needed special rules, didn't she, to, to get through that. Um, you know, special rules were created for her to kind of navigate that. And, you know, I've had a lot of reader feedback going, gee, she's, you know, pregnant and doing all these things. Well, you know, I think, you know, the reader can see that, you know, but she has internalised that and she at no point it was wanting to give up this very hard-won profession, um, you know, that she's very good at, um, you know, and, th and through that, that, that profession, that's what she needs to do. So, yeah, so that's kind of how I wrote her, yeah. Jane, before we talk about violence, what was interesting in what um, Danuka said is this question of the competent woman who doesn't have confidence in herself. And I think perhaps um, Alison in your book is a case in point. Absolutely. And so is Miriam, in fact. Um, they doubt themselves constantly. And I think that's because women internalise the way society sees us. And, um, 
you know, Elizabeth Broderick said it brilliantly once that sexism is like asbestos in the walls. We all breathe it in. So all of us um, internalise those messages. And for uh, men and boys, they get a message that they are competent, superior, able to cope. In fact, they have to. So there's an insecurity that comes with that of, I am supposed to behave differently from how I actually feel. Whereas women's sexism is in, in, that they absorb is, you're not good enough. Basically, I think that that is the core message that is sent to every female, you're not good enough. Um, because to be, to be a woman is to be not a man. So we're sort of lesser being. And um, you can't not internalise that message. And so you're always having to push yourself to consciously reject that message, which takes effort and energy and the message keeps coming back. So every time you take a risk, you'll have the voice in your head that says, what are you doing this for? You're not good enough. And, um, and I just think that that's, I mean, I've never met a woman yet who didn't have it somewhere. Focusing on the mother, is there a connection between that and the violence in the book? Well, yes, because I think, I think my book deals predominantly, certainly the first half, with coercive control, whereas not overt violence, but there's a kind of insidious undermining of the actual personality and agency and power of the victim. And I think that some, mostly men, but some people in our society consciously or unconsciously know how to do that and they are aided by the sexism that we've all breathed in. It makes all women vulnerable to that kind of attack. I don't know if people have seen the Tinder swindler that uh, was on Netflix. Yeah, a lot of people are nodding. Well, when I watched that, I went, that's Nick to the life because he knows all the levers to push to make a woman believe that at last her prince has come. Here's a man who will look after her and protect her and make her feel fabulous, treat her the way she deserves to be treated. But of course, she doesn't really think she deserves to be treated that way, but she really enjoys being treated that way. And of course, that's played on. That's used by some ruthless people. And it makes, and in the mother, that's exactly what happens. Nick love bombs Alison. He absolutely makes her feel totally loved and accepted. And of course, we know already that Miriam had trouble doing that. So that also adds to Miriam's guilt and relief. Oh, good. Nick can love Alison the way she deserved to be loved, the way I wanted to love her, but perhaps I never did properly. So there's all this complication and it's the vulnerability of basically a sense that you are okay just the way you are, which is the essence of confidence. Confidence is not about, I need to improve myself. That's a lack of confidence. Confidence is actually, I'm fine just the way I am. That's why we all say, oh, for the confidence of a mediocre white man, because that's exactly how they feel. They're fine just the way they are. They don't need to get any better. And actually, I don't blame. That, that's what we want for women too, that sense that you're fine just the way you are. Neither Miriam nor Alison nor Fiona feel that they're fine just the way they are. And that makes them vulnerable. I'm going to take up that quote, um, oh, for the confidence of a mediocre white man. Laura, your 
uh, book, The Newcomer, is set in the fictional um, island of Fairfolk Island. There are many mediocre white men in that book and there is a pervading violence. Tell me what interested you about that enough to write about it. Um, well, I don't think that the island is necessarily worse than any other place. I think, you know, the attitudes that a lot of the island men have uh, are able to go unchecked because it is an isolated community where people are closely related. But I think, you know, the same patterns are everywhere. And I, I never wanted to imply that... Um, this is not a reflection of the society we all live in, because I think, I think that it is. Um, yeah, but, you know, Paulina, before she moves to the island, has a relationship um, which I give, you know, little details about here and there throughout the novel, but you have to kind of keep reading to find out more. But um, basically, you know, she got together with her boyfriend when she was quite young, he seemed perfect, um, but the relationship was actually not as perfect as it seemed. He was actually, in a more subtle way, like quite controlling and um, undermined her self-esteem like throughout many years. So, you know, she, she moves to this island and she is vulnerable to men who are more um, explicitly predatory. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, on the island, like, she has a number of relationships. Um, some of the men, you know, are better at hiding their misogyny than others. Uh, and I, I wanted to show, like, I guess, like, different manifestations of those attitudes. And even, um, you know, Paulina's best friend is a guy called Jesse. Um, and he, he's a... I think he's a really sympathetic character. He's... Um, his mother is Aboriginal, his father is Maltese, uh, he's been on the island, like, he was born on the island, but he's not, um, doesn't have the same heritage as everybody else who, um, you know, a lot of the island, uh, islanders in, in the book are um, descended from a fictional naval, British naval mutiny, um, based, loosely based on um, the mutiny on the bounty, but I fictionalised it. Um, yeah, and so he, he is not, um, you know, part of that old, you know, old culture, so he's kind of on the outside, but he still has to fit in with the island men to some extent. And, um, you know, he is very, very close to Paulina. He is mostly a good friend to her, but he's not perfect. And I wanted to show how even um, a guy who can, you know, who does seem really sweet can fail sometimes as well. Thank you. Danuka, we've touched on this already, but we already know that Kate is not eight months, but nine months pregnant when, when the book opens. So she's on deadline, really on deadline. Um, she's also a woman of colour in a profession dominated by men. And day after day, you show how she confronts casual misogyny and racism. Was this something that you particularly wanted to explore or something that involved, evolved with the book? Um, yeah, I think it did evolve. Um, you know, it wasn't something I initially started kind of writing about, but it kind of um, came through, um, you know, as the edits progressed. Um, with, with Kate, what was interesting to look at 
for her was, you know, like she's she's born in Australia, um, so she's, she comes from, you know, a mixed heritage um, family, you know, uh, mother's Sri Lankan, dad's um, Australian. So, so it was really interesting for me to look at, I guess, um, the way she sees herself, um, because she's born in Australia, so she has very much Australian experiences. You know, her, her cultural knowledge is is of Australia. You know, uh, but she is constantly forced to navigate kind of conversations around you know her skin colour and where she comes from. You know, um, and so it was that kind of a, it was that tension between I guess um, how she sees herself <laughs> and how other people may see her, and that was I think um, yeah just a thing that. Uh, you know, I could play with because it's, you know, based on a few little things that have happened to me as well. So, yeah. <laughs> so it was a good thing to play with. I'd say that it's unusual to have a mother as a main character in a book, often side characters, but not so often main characters. Why do you think that is? Jane, start with you. Well, I think it's because largely until recently, um, what we wrote, read, made, produced, filmed had to be approved by a man at some point, and they didn't necessarily find mothers particularly interesting. Women were interesting to them up to the point when they became mothers. And then there's a sort of, oh, they've disappeared. What was it? Um, was it Cyril, Cyril somebody, I can't remember his last name, which is good, said um, the, uh, the death knell to creativity is the pram in the hall. And so there's this idea that as soon as a woman has a child, she becomes boring. She's just going to go off into domesticity and looking after boring little children and won't be worshipping at the altar of the bloke anymore. Um, and so I think that's really why, sorry, I'm just being straight up about it. And now we've got many more women writing, producing, broadcasting, and I think it's followed after Hash Me Too as well. When uh, there's an old saying, I can't remember if you said this either, probably anonymous, that woman who said so much that was witty, um, where she, uh, it's when women start telling the truth about their own lives, it will change the world. And I think from Hashmi too, women started telling the truth about their own lives. That's what all the revelation of sexual assault, sexual abuse, humiliation, harassment, etc., etc., the outpouring um, worldwide was really about. And ever since that time, we've seen that snowball and increase. And now mothers are starting to write the truth of what it feels like to be a mother. Now, I know Lionel Shriver wrote before 2017. There were obviously outliers who had done that previously. But I, I mean, watching that wonderful um, film on Netflix, The Lost Daughter, was such a really great exploration of the ambivalence of motherhood. Uh, and so I think what women are doing is they're saying that saccharine presentation of the idealised mother, uh, we're, and, and really we got in the past in literature when mothers appeared, the idealised angelic mommy or the uh, irritating, trivialised, pathetically kind of fluffy Mrs. Bennett. Um, that's the kind of range of roles that women were permitted to play. Now we're actually seeing that becoming a mother doesn't turn you into a caricature or a stereotype. In fact, it creates a level of emotional um, bewilderment and dilemma and ambivalence that is fascinating and that it is bizarre that we have left that until the 2000s to actually start exploring that in art. 
And I think we have to say thank you to feminism for opening up that new uh, area of human experience which has been previously ignored. Just moving on from that, thank you, Jane. Uh, Laura, it seems to me that in the past you've focused on relationships between couples and now with the newcomer you've moved to a relationship between a mother and a daughter. Um, why, why was that? I don't know. It's just something that kind of happened. Like, I think even with um, The Love of a Bad Man, like um, my first book, uh, it's short stories about criminal couples mostly, but I still have family relationships in there. They're just not the focus. So it's it's always been something that I'm interested in. I'm also really interested in sister relationships. Um, but yeah, I think I, I've never like really focused on a mother and daughter. Um, but what I really wanted to do with this book, I think, um, was to start it from the perspective of the person who loves the victim the most and who misses her and mourns her more than anybody else. And, um, you know, the mother was the logical logical solution. And, um, yeah, Judy, um, you know, I, I, I was really interested in, like, that sort of um, imperfect but close mother-daughter bond where they kind of, um, you know, push and pull at each other and there is a level of um, codependence and um, they're both kind of crossing boundaries, they're both hiding things from each other. Like, I just found it really, um, once I got into it, just really rife with drama. <laughs> Danuka, Kate is the main mother in your book, uh, but there's also mothers on the side. And one who particularly interested me was Annette Marshall, and she's the mother of a young man who drowned. And this is a case that Kate comes to investigate. Tell me about Annette and what interested you about her. Yeah, Annette was interesting because I guess she, you know, it's, it's her loss and her grief over her son's death that drives this case and, and, and I guess forces, you know, she, she, it's, it's her um, advocacy um, and her interest in that that kind of brings the case back up and, and you know, gets Kate to kind of reinvestigate it or, you know, um, they, they re-review that case. So it's really her grief and her constant, I guess, um, pushing to say, you know, remember, this is the actual victim. Remember the victim. And she keeps, like, she's, she keeps sending kind of emails to Kate with, with just pictures of her son, photos of her son, um, you know, from, from, from childhood to, to, you know, when he died, um, just, to, just to make his life real for her and to not let her forget that that is who you know, is at the heart of, of this, you know, and, and her grief is, is dismissed by the other, you know, sort of uh, police, police people, like her, her boss, um, Kate's boss, as, you know, um, you know, just, you know, grief sticking old, old bat, you know, like just, yeah, she's just batshit crazy, kind of, that kind of attitude of, you know, not taking that grief seriously. Uh, but that is actually the driver, that's the whole reason that case came about, you know, it, it's, it's her... Um, uh, her grief that that runs through the book and and kind of makes the case reopen. Yeah, it occurred to me that one thing that joins Annette and Miriam Duffy and um, and Judy Novak is their fervor. They're fervent in their protection and their love 
for their children. Was the question of fervour something that interested you? Um, Laura, then, then Jane. Mm. Yeah, but also um, I didn't want to be like having like some sort of like cliched representation of what a strong female character or a strong mother looks like. So I think from the outside, Judy does look really weak a lot of the time. Like, I don't think there's a chapter where she doesn't cry. Like, she cries a lot. And um, she, especially in the first chapters, you know, like, the grief has, like, affected her so much that she can barely, you know, drag herself through life, let alone be on the case of the, the detectives who are, you know, responsible for solving the murder. She is not the one who's saying look into this person, do this, do that. Like, she doesn't have the energy and her world has been turned upside down. So I wanted to um, really show her strength in another way by being, um, my focus being more on like her um, wanting Paulina to be known for who she really was and to be known as lo lovable rather than who did it so much. Um, so there are, you know, other characters in the book who are more sort of um, closely, like, working with the, the detectives and stuff, um, Judy's sister, Caro, specifically. But, um, yeah, I wanted to show the strength of somebody who, like, the most important thing in their life is gone. They have to go on living and... To go on living, you know, with grace and with humour and with empathy, uh, you know, these values that were central to her relationship with Paulina, um, to, you know, get that part of herself back and even um, find a way to grow, you know, past her loss, um, that was a strength that interested me a lot more. Thank you. Jane, Miriam is nothing if not fervent. Mm. Tell me about fervour as, as something you wrote about or something you're interested in. Well, I think it comes out of what inspired the idea for the book, which is seeing a photograph of one of those, you know, there was a horrible murder-suicide, the headlines come far too regularly by a man of his wife and children and then he killed himself. And I saw a photograph of the family, the wife and the children, with an older woman, not her mother, probably her grandmother, I guess. Grandmother's face is pixelated out and I'm a grandmother and I was looking at this and I just thought to myself, oh, how must that poor woman be feeling now? I mean, after such a horrendous experience and tragedy. And then I thought, you know, what if that was my daughter, my grandchildren? How would I feel? what would I do? And then I thought, I know what I'd want to do. And that's basically where the genesis of the book came from. And so I suppose it was about the intensity of the protective instinct in mothers and grandmothers. And I'm sure fathers and grandfathers feel it too, but from my own experience. And I, so there is a fervour in that desperate need to protect uh, those you love when you feel they are under threat. And that really is where Miriam is for the whole of the second half of the book. And she learns a great deal about herself in the process of that and what in the end she's driven to do because she also then realises that she's to a large extent given away a lot of her power 
throughout her life, which I think women do a lot. We, we placate, we fit in um, and all of that. And that when the chips are down, when your back's really against the wall, you have to make a decision. Am I going to take that power back or am I going to continue to give it away? And so her fervour, her desire to protect the people she loves leads to her taking the power back. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We've almost come to the end, but we've got a room full of people, and I'm presuming we've got um, at least a half of a room full of questions. So it's your turn now. If you'd like to ask a question, um, this is an audience of goodwill, don't be shy. If you just come to the side and the volunteers will um, help you approach the microphone. Talking about Me Too um, evolution, I think is the best way of putting it, to what extent do you now think that fiction now is reflecting female roles in the strong way that women are, as opposed to crime fiction, which is historically about women being passive or observers rather than being actually out there, apart from Miss Marple. Um, so, you and know, Vera. T- sorry? And Vera. And Vera. And Vera, of But course. they have to be old, notice. And they have to be old. <laughs> you, you know, you can't just be a, a young and, and, you know, upcoming detective. You have mm. to be someone with great wisdom and surrounded by pretty boys. So, you know, <laughs> to what extent do you think now that crime fiction is going to move forward with more um, women as protagonists. I'll just ask Danuka to start with that question and then um, then we'll move to the other panellists. Danuka. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, in my detective series, I've explicitly kind of moved away from the sort of the, the tropes, I guess, which are kind of quite entrenched in, in crime fiction, which is the, the childless, you know, um, single male detective who... Um, you know, I mean, if he has children, they're certainly being looked after by someone else or they're somewhere in the background or, or they're grown up and he's, he's had a, um, you know, relationship breakdown. So that leaves that story. That's taking care of that story and he's, he's, he's free to do whatever he wants. So, um, so, you know, I've explicitly kind of moved away from that because, you know, uh, I think we discussed this earlier where, you know, I did, I did want to reflect a different kind of strength, different kind of resilience um, in, in the people I see every day, um, you know, uh, you know, so in the familiar kind of everyday women that I, I see, you know, every day. And I think, you know, with, with crime fiction, certainly with the kind of rise of kind of domestic noir, um, you know, all those ideas around kind of what's important to women in terms of fertility, in terms of, you know, that overwhelming phase of when we first have a child. So you're talking about sleep deprivation, you know, postnatal anxiety, postnatal depression, all those things. And then that fundamental um, issue around protection of kids, you know, keeping your kids safe, like which is, you know, that, that, that instinctive absolute desire as, you know, mammals, as, as a species, um, all of that is fabulous fodder for crime fiction, you know, and, and has, you know, I mean, there's been, you know, a, a rise of those kind of books with, say, you know, Michael Robotham's, I think, um, The Secret She Keeps, you know, uh, around that, um, you know, I think, you know, Petronella McGovern's uh, Six Minutes, you know, um, all those ideas around protecting your kids. And, and I think Anna Downs, um, The Shadow House as well, you know, all about, you know, um, parental anxiety, constantly doubting yourself, the ideas around, you know, can that person be trusted? Can her memories be trusted? Because she's existing in that in that mental fog of sleep deprivation and all the rest of it. So, um, 
and specifically on the point of, I guess, um, you know, the action hero as well, because we, you know, there's been such a kind of a thing of, you know, obviously it's a male action hero, you know, you stay at home, look after the kids, I'll go save the world. Um, and there have been, like, explicitly now um, books like The Good Mother by Ray Cairns or Kate Milden Hall's, you know, The Mother Fault, that's put a mother and a woman at the centre as the, you know, action hero and, and on the run and kind of doing that, that role. So I think we are definitely moving from that phase um, because, yeah, as you say, more women are writing um, and we're writing about our lives. I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you, Danuka, okay. yep. and move to the next question. And, of course, um, there will be book signings, so um, these conversations can continue. Please. Um, how do you write a good mystery story? Huh, easy question. <laughs> Sorry for it being so simple, I'm just curious. <laughs> Who'd like to answer, Jane? <clears throat> um, well, I think you have to, and I never thought I'd write a thriller. Like, it, I always thought I wasn't clever enough to come up with a plot, so I understand the dilemma. Um, well, actually, one of the ways you do it is to cheat. So find a really good subject and then get some information on how that works. And coercive control, can I tell you, um, is a drip, 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 drip kind of a process. And so it lends itself, um, this is a really big hint for you, sir, uh, it lends itself to a mystery novel because in a way that's how it feels for the person who's experiencing it. Constantly off kilter, you, your expectations are set up to expect this and then comedy and mystery almost work in exactly the same way. Charlie Chaplin once described comedy as film comedy as you show the fat woman, you show the banana people, peel, you show the fat woman, you show the, show the banana peel, you show the fat woman, you show the banana peel, you show the fat woman stepping over the banana peel and disappearing down a manhole. So it's, and mystery is the same, you set up the, here's what's going to happen, you think that's going to happen, and then you put them down the manhole, the thing you haven't revealed. Thank you. Um, I know we've got three questions, so we're going to move to the next question and five minutes in which to answer it. So thank you, please, your question. Wonderful, wonderful panel. Um, do you write your ending first? Um, I didn't write it first, but I knew how it was going to end. Um, obviously not going to give away the ending because I want people to buy it. Um, but yeah, I... I, I um, you know, what I was doing with my book, really, I was actually trying to um, trick people in a way that they were reading a mystery uh, whodunit when actually my goal is for them to get attached to the characters and um, care about other things by the end of the book. But I always knew where it was going. Danica, do you write the ending first? I don't write it first, but I definitely know what it's going to be. <laughs> I mean, well, I have an idea of it. I mean, I don't have the exact ending. Um, so, yeah, I absolutely have an idea of where both my protagonists were going to end up, and I just have to work my way towards that, yeah. <laughs> Jane, ending you know, first? Yeah, I know what it's going to be, but I haven't, I haven't written it. Okay. Easily answered. Next question. Thank you for such a brilliant panel. I've enjoyed it so much. Christine actually just stole my question. That's what I was going to ask. So I've changed my question at the very last second. I love crime novels. I read a lot of them. What's the best one you've read recently so I can add to my reading list? So um, Kate Forsyth has asked the question. Kate, of course, is a well-known writer in her own right, and she also has a um, book club uh, online. So the question is, what's the best crime book you've read? Who wants to say? Yes, Laura, please. 
Um, so I'm a bit biased because it's a friend of mine, but um, my friend Anna Snockstra, uh, her new book, Out of Breath, um, that's coming out in August. Uh, we actually traded some chapters early on when I was writing The Newcomer, and she was writing that book. And um, it takes place in Western Australia. Um, there's a backpacker who's trying to get a visa to stay for a longer time in Australia and um, encounters a lot of stuff, a lot of exploitation of backpacker workers, but also then encounters a... Um, idyllic seeming community uh, out, living outside Broome and it's just um, never knew where it was going but just the way she like realised the place and also the characters were um, you know a lot of thought was put into the characters as well So, Could you give it the title and, and, and the author again? Yeah Out of Breath by Anna Stockstra. Thank you and Danuka. Um, yeah, so I would definitely recommend um, Wake by Shelley Burr, um, which just came out oh, maybe two or three weeks ago. Um, and yeah, that's incredible, like an outback noir mystery with uh, a missing um, girl. So basically, um, 19 years ago, two sisters um, go to their room to go to bed. In the morning, only one sister is there. So how did the other sister disappear? What's happened? Um, and we're taken sort of you know, we start at the present time of sort of that effect of that trauma on, on the surviving sister. Um, and, and I guess she really, really explores um, not only that incredible outback, you know, iconic kind of outback landscape of Australia, but also um, sort of the ideas around who gets to tell their stories when, you know, in these cases around missing children um, and which, which, which victims get the media attention and be which victims don't, um, and that kind of stuff is really well explored. So, yeah, highly, highly recommend, yeah. Jane, I've been given the two minute, and we've got one more question. Jane, title and author. Okay, title I can't remember, CJ Sampson, anything by him. Elizabethan uh, murder mysteries, absolutely brilliant. Got it. Every last and, one. <laughs> and we've got, we've got a quick question. I'm, I'm, I'm running right to deadline. <laughs> Hello. Thank you to all the panellists for an excellent, thought-provoking talk. I loved it. However, you haven't helped me casting my vote tomorrow. There's a dearth of leadership in this country. But my question is, you talk about men being traditionally strong and virile and they knew everything. And in the old days, of course, women couldn't even become accountants. Is this why men do such things as uh, Saddam invading Kuwait and Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine because they have to dominate? Oh, I'm going to ask Jane to Goodness, do... Goodness, and we've got a minute left. Jane, you're, you're doing the political bite, the sound bite. What's the answer? OK, well, um, tomorrow you need to vote for me. <laughs> and it's a wrap. <laughs> Any independent who's standing in your electorate, and if you haven't got an independent to Green or Labor, because we've got to get Albo and we've got to get Morrison out. Um, and no question about that. Uh, yes, I do think there is something in your theory that we teach men that they need, little boys, that they need to be dominant and that that plays into 
toxic masculinity, which is different from masculinity. And I think it's part of why they resist believing in climate change, because if you believe in climate change, we stop dominating the earth and we start to nurture it, care for it, and live with it and around it, and we must collaborate to do that. So it, the, the urge to dominate, which is part of toxic masculinity, not masculinity per se, I think is very much at the root of a lot of our problems. Let's thank hope you. we change that. And we're done. Thank you, audience. Thank you, our guests. Thank you, Nai. Thank you, Raja. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.